A hinge point is a moment around which everything else turns, a moment when a fundamental change in direction takes place, a moment when one's point of view is altered, a moment when one's understanding of reality is shifted. Some have been calling the current coronavirus pandemic a hinge point in human history because they believe it is fundamentally changing our lives, not just in the immediate moment that we're living in, but going forward. For example, some are suggesting that something as simple as shaking hands, a tradition that has gone on for as long as any of us could even imagine going, they're talking about that going the way of the dinosaur, that there will not be any shaking of hands after this stuff. It's not possible for us to really know how much impact this pandemic is going to have on our world over the long term. It certainly raises some intriguing questions, though, doesn't it? The biggest hinge point in human history occurred some 2,000 years ago when the God of the universe entered into our world as a human being, lived among us for a time, was put to death on a cross of crucifixion, and then resurrected on the third day. The theologian N.T. Wright wrote, The resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just a surprise happy ending for one person. It's instead the turning point for everything else. Through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, human history was fundamentally changed. And when we personally receive Jesus Christ into our life as Savior and Lord, we are fundamentally changed changed a hinge point occurs in our life we pass from death to life from darkness to light from old to new from being lost to being found our old life ends and a new life begins someone might ask the question well why does the resurrection of jesus christ matter i mean what difference does it really make simply put through his own resurrection jesus makes resurrection possible for you and me. And resurrection, it doesn't mean that we are simply resuscitated to live longer in these same weak, sickly, vulnerable, aging bodies that we have now. Instead, we're going to have new resurrection bodies like Jesus. We will have a new kind of body with a new kind of life with a new heaven and a new earth free of disease, free of decay, free of death. Now, because it's Easter, I want to look at the resurrection story, the hinge point event in human history. If you have your Bible, let's flip over to Luke chapter 23, and we'll begin there this morning. Luke chapter 23, verse 55-0. At that time, the people who had been following Jesus, they believed he was the Messiah, the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies and the answer to their prayers and dreams. See, in their minds, he was going to be the great rescuer of their people, ushering in a new era of prosperity for the Jews. He was going to be their great king. But Jesus, he's now dead, hanging from a cross, having been executed like a common criminal. All of their hopes and dreams have been shattered. 
The problem, though, was not that Jesus had failed them. They had failed to listen to what he had been saying to them all along. They had not been listening when he told them that he must suffer and die. They had not been listening when he told them that his kingdom was not of this world. They had not been listening when he told them that he would come back to life on the third day. They'd been looking for a Messiah that they wanted rather than the Messiah they needed. We struggle with the same problem. We are looking for a Messiah that we want rather than the Messiah that we need. People are looking for a Messiah that will make them happy, remove the trouble from their life, fulfill their dreams, be a Santa Claus of sorts. The real Messiah isn't like that. He didn't come to fulfill our agenda, to check all of the boxes on our to-do list, to conveniently fit himself into our life. The real Messiah, the real Messiah, he came to fulfill the will of the Father, to live as an example for us to follow, to create a new kind of life in us, to establish a new kind of kingdom, not like this world. Well, let's begin reading in verse 50. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consulted to their decision and action to kill Jesus. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. So here's the situation. Jesus, he was executed. It's a Friday. The Jewish Sabbath begins on Sunday, sundown on Friday, and lasts until sundown on Saturday. No work is to be done during the Sabbath. So the dead body of Jesus, it needed to be removed from the cross and laid to rest before sundown on Friday. Otherwise, the body would have to remain on the cross for another day and a half until the Sabbath was over. Because Jesus himself was poor, his body would normally have just been thrown into a common pit with the other two men who were crucified that day with him. But a wealthy, quiet follower of Jesus named Joseph, he got permission from the Romans to take the body of Jesus down from the cross and give him a respectful burial. Joseph, being a member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, he had the necessary credentials and authority then for Pilate to release the body in custody to him. Joseph, he took the body of Jesus, he put it into a new burial tomb, which he had been saving for himself, it tells us. The deceased of the wealthy were typically placed in tombs or caves with these small couches that would be carved into the walls on which the bodies would be laid. And then a specially uh, crafted heavy stone cover would then be rolled over the entrance to prevent animals and grave robbers from getting into the tomb. We learn from Matthew's account that once the tomb uh, that Jesus was placed in was closed, then an official Roman seal was also placed on the entrance and soldiers were positioned as guards there to prevent anyone from stealing the body of Jesus. 
It's significant that the body of Jesus is placed in the tomb of a rich person. First, this was a fulfillment of the ancient prophecy found in Isaiah 53.9, which says that the Messiah would be assigned a grave with the rich. Second, though, it, it means that the place where the body of Jesus was put was a known and easily identifiable location. If you have ever been to a cemetery, even in our own country, in our own time and culture, you know how easy it is to locate the graves of the wealthy people. They have the big grave stones, the headstones, the monuments, the crypts. Those are all for the rich people. The, the common people, their graves are very nondescript even in our own culture in comparison. There was an even larger distinction in the days of Jesus between the graves of the wealthy and the common people. The body of Jesus was put in the tomb of a wealthy person, which means that there was no reasonable possibility that Jesus' followers would go to the wrong tomb later and merely think that he had resurrected from the grave because they had gone to the wrong tomb. The, the tomb that he was put in was a grandiose type of a situation in comparison to a common grave of that day verse 55 it says the women who had come with jesus from galilee followed joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes but they rested on the sabbath in obedience to the commandment these women they note a very carefully where the body of Jesus is put so they can then come back after the Sabbath and complete the burial treatments that were typical for that day where the body would be anointed with oils and perfumes and it would be wrapped in these spiced uh, laden linens. Again, it's extremely improbable that the followers of Jesus went to the wrong tomb. These women were very conscientious about noting where Jesus' body was put. He was precious to them. They were going to make sure about where his body was at so they could come back and treat it with this very loving respect. Verse 1 of Luke 24, the story continues. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was Still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It says on the first day of the week, meaning the first day after the Sabbath, which would be Sunday. And that's why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, not on a Monday, which would be the first day of our week. In that culture, Sunday was the first day of their week. The people built their whole lives around the Sabbath in that culture. 
Well, the women, they returned to the tomb where the body of Jesus had been placed on Friday, and they discover that it's not there. And as they begin working through their minds what might have happened to the body, two men in dazzling white, angels, they ask them why they're looking for the living among the dead. They tell the women that Jesus has risen just as he told them he would do. Well, the women, they then run and they tell the disciples what has happened. In verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. I want us to note that the disciples, they didn't believe the story that the women told them. It says that it seemed like nonsense to them. And, you know, I can't blame the disciples for being skeptical. People don't come back to life. Death is a one-way street. Millions and millions and millions of deaths over many years have confirmed that this is the way it works. There was one time, though, in human history when the way it always works was not the way it worked. Some skeptics of the resurrection of Jesus have tried to explain it away by suggesting that the disciples, they wanted to believe so badly that the resurrection happened that they imagined that it took place. But we see here that the disciples were skeptical. They didn't believe the story of the women. They thought it was nonsense like most people would have thought. They didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead anyway. Resurrection from the dead was not something on their radar. It was not part of the understanding that they had about these things. It was not something that they expected or anticipated from Jesus. See, every time Jesus had ever told them that he would come back to life on the third day, they thought that he was making some kind of strange figurative reference to something else. They never took it literally when Jesus had told them that he would come back to life. They came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus against their initial misgivings and doubts. Verse 13, the scene changes from here to now the the road leading from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. It says, now... That same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleophas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? The resurrected Jesus, he he comes up beside these two disciples and he begins talking with them as they're walking along the road. And, and the thing that adds intrigue to the story is that they don't recognize who he is. 
He, he doesn't reveal his identity to them. Somehow, Jesus prevented these two guys from recognizing who he was. As far as they know, he's just some stranger to them who they've never met before, and he walks up and, hey, what's going on? They're shocked that this person doesn't appear to know anything about what's gripped the entire city of Jerusalem for the past many days. I want us to note that Jesus was not a minor character on history's stage. See, he was not just some mentally unstable person, largely ignored by everybody, who walked around with a sandwich board through the streets of Jerusalem that said, I'm the Messiah. He drew the attention of the whole country. Everyone was captivated by this man. Many people loved Jesus. Some people hated Jesus. But nobody ignored Jesus in those days. Well, Jesus asked them, what things? And they say, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. They said that they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. But now that he has been killed, they're trying to come to grips with the fact that they have been foolishly mistaken. In their minds, Jesus had not been the Messiah after all. He had been a great prophet, a great teacher, a miracle worker, a doer of good deeds. But he wasn't the Messiah as they had hoped. The Messiah would never have allowed himself to be tortured and killed the way Jesus did. Their Messiah was going to be a great conqueror. They backed the wrong horse. All of their hopes that they had placed in Jesus were destroyed when he was killed on that cross. Twenty-two. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So to add insult to injury for these guys, the body of Jesus was now missing from its tomb. And some of the women in their group had told them this weird story about some angels that they had seen at the tomb who said Jesus was alive. The last thing they needed now was some foolish story like this to extend the heartbreak that they're going through. How little they understood, though, about the mission of the Messiah. They were about to find out. In verse 25, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What an amazing Bible study that must have been. I mean, to have Jesus take you through the Old Testament part of the Bible and explain all of the promises and predictions about the Messiah. 
They had been quick to believe the prophecies about the Messiah coming to overthrow their enemies and establish his rule. But they had failed to really pay attention to any of the prophecies about the suffering of the Messiah. The suffering and the death of Jesus, it was incompatible with the ideas that they had always held about the Messiah. They always thought the Messiah was going to be a great warrior king who would free them from the tyranny and the oppression of their enemies and establish Israel as a world power. Their idea of the kingdom of God was really the kingdom of Israel. Makes us think, doesn't it? What preconceptions, what misunderstandings you and I might have about Jesus which present which prevent us from seeing him as he really is and for who he really is? I mean, have we latched on to certain ideas about Jesus which we find exciting and chosen to ignore things that are difficult and unpopular? Have we cast him in the image of our own culture rather than seeing him as he really is? Why did Jesus come? I'm sure that was one of the subjects discussed by Jesus with these men as they were walking along. Jesus came to rescue the people of this world from sin and death. And if that idea sounds too quaint to you, then then you may be forgetting just how serious the problem of sin and death are in this world. See, everything wrong with this world is related to sin in some way. The, The wars, the disease... The suffering, the broken relationships, the national conflicts, the personal conflicts, the starvation, the depression, the hopelessness, the dying, all of it. All of it. Jesus came to rescue us. He came to redeem us. He came to bring forgiveness for our sins. He came to bring life, new life. He came to establish a new future for us. 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. So after walking along with Jesus for the better part of a couple of hours, they finally arrive at the village of Emmaus and they urge him to stay on and eat with them because it was getting late in the day. And at the meal, Jesus, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it and he passed it out to them. Well, what does that remind us of? The Last Supper, when Jesus did a similar thing with the disciples. That registered with them too. It says, when Jesus did this, they suddenly recognized him. If the story of Jesus had ended with his death, it would have been a sad tragedy for those who had put their hopes in him. But the story of Jesus, it doesn't end with his death. Because he didn't stay dead. 
The resurrection sets Jesus apart as profoundly different and unique from all other human beings. He was not just a human being. He was more, much more than that. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. He was the God-man, God incarnate, God clothed in human flesh. Without the resurrection, the life of Jesus may have been considered noble, but in the end, he was a person who had been badly misunderstood by the people of his generation. It ended in his death. With the resurrection, Jesus is declared with power to be the Son of God, worthy to be worshipped and served, as it says in Romans 1, 4. Jesus holds the keys to this life and life after death. He can give us new life now that is lived for something larger and more fulfilling than our own selfish aims. He can give us a new ethic to live by that pleases God and ultimately pleases us. He can give us the hope and the promise of resurrection and eternal life. With resurrection, Jesus Christ does not just free our immortal soul from a diseased and dying body. He promises us a new body, like his own resurrected body. We'll not just be disrobed from a dead body, we will be clothed with a new one, a better one, a glorious one. Philippians 3.20, Paul wrote, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. For those who have the hope of resurrection through Jesus Christ, this present life is as bad as it is ever going to get. Things are only going to get better, a lot better. For those who don't have the hope of resurrection through Jesus, this present life is as good as it's ever going to get. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? You can have the hope of resurrection. The hope for a new life, both now and forever. God loves you and He sent His Son Jesus Christ to this world to rescue you, to give you this new life. John 3.16, that very familiar passage that we see at every sporting event on television. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. How do you take hold of Jesus Christ as your rescuer, your Savior, and receive the new resurrected life that he wants to give you. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess or profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Believing in Jesus Christ, having faith in Jesus Christ, it means believing He is the ultimate answer to our problems and our life and that we're committing ourselves to following Him. It's a whole life commitment to Jesus Christ. 
believing in and following him, it's, it's not like looking up your horoscope and seeing interesting parallels with your life. Or imagining that the fortune that you found inside of a cookie might actually come true. Believing in Jesus is of such character that you center your life around Him. You build your life upon Him. If you want your sin forgiven, your guilt before God taken away, have the hope of resurrection and receive the new life of Jesus Christ in you, you can do that with a real simple prayer. Pray this prayer with me even now. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe you came back to life. Come inside of me and give me your new life. Make me into the person you want me to be. I'm going to follow you with my life from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you've prayed that prayer or a similar prayer and you really meant it, then you have begun a new life as a child of God in Jesus Christ. And I can say, welcome to the family. His, his hinge point has become your hinge point. Your new life begins today. Think about that. Your new life begins today. Well, let's close in prayer, and we have a, a last song to share with you. Father, I thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that through his resurrection, I too can be resurrected, and we can have a new life in you. We thank you that our sin can be forgiven, our guilt before you taken away, the hope of heaven, and a, a new purpose in this life for living. I ask God that you would touch each heart here today. You would just renew us in our love for you and our worship of you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.